I want you to imagine right now that it is the first century. And you are a Jewish person who lives in a little town called Bethany. Just outside the city of Jerusalem. You live in a neighborhood with a family next to you who has three siblings. The siblings' name are, are, are Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And in your neighborhood, there are lots of houses and lots of people, but you are especially close to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And you, you watch from a distance over a period of about three years after they meet this certain rabbi named Jesus, Jesus of, of Nazareth. And they start talking to you about this Jesus, this rabbi, and and you're a good Jew, just like they're good Jews, and so they invite you over to their house from time to time for fellowship and, and instruction even. And Mary and Martha and Lazarus begin to tell you about Jesus. They tell you about His signs. They tell you that He, he made a lame man who had been lame for 38 years to walk. He did it in Jerusalem, just five miles away. And they said, you, sh you should have seen it. You, you, you've even seen the man in and around the temple before, laying at the pool of Bethesda. And, and that man walks now because Jesus made him walk. And then they tell you about him making a blind man be able to see. He was blind even from his very birth, and Jesus miraculously has caused the man to be able to see things around him for the first time. They even tell you that he has made the religious people run at times. He's overturned the money-changing tables in the temple, and they say, you would not believe it. Those religious people were so scared of Him. Not only do they tell you about his, his signs, they tell you about His claims. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus say, you wouldn't believe this Jesus. You really need to, to experience Him. He, he says He is the light of the world. He, he says that He's the bread of life. He says that before Abraham was, I am. He's claiming for himself deity. And then they tell you about his love. They tell you about the fact that even though he didn't have to, he, he walked through the area of Samaria. And he met with a woman there at a well who was likely a prostitute. And he changed her life and gave her spiritual eyes to see the glory of God and a heart to live for Him. And not only did He change her, but He loved the Samaritans in the adjoining village and they all came to faith in Jesus and they're true worshipers of God now. They even just talk about the charisma in which He, he meets with people and He looks at them in the eyes and He talks with them with a great deal of compassion and mercy. They tell you about His purity. The purity of His words, the purity of His actions, the purity of His life. But then... Something happens. Lazarus, he gets sick. Really sick. And he's in the bed. And he looks like he's going to die. And, and you're in and around the house and you're bringing meals over to, to help in any way that you can encourage. And, and so Mary and Martha send off one of the friends to go to Jesus, which is miles and miles away. And they say, we, we need you to come down and, and help Lazarus. And you, you hear them send, send off for Jesus. And then you happen to be back at their house a couple of days later when the messenger comes back and, and Jesus sent, simply sent the message that, oh, don't worry, this will all end in the glory of God so that I will be glorified. And then, two days later, Lazarus dies right there in his bed. 
and you're around. And you're thinking two things. Number one, you love Lazarus. He's a good friend. He's a neighbor of yours. And then you're thinking, I feel really sorry for Mary and Martha now because they had put all their hopes in this Jesus. And while He had helped others, He could not help them in their time of need. So you grieve. You actually are asked to be one of the the persons in the funeral procession because they wrapped Lazarus up on the day of his death and they take him to the tomb. There's a funeral procession and there's professional mourners, weeping and wailers who are going to the tomb. Much noise, much mourning, much grieving. And they put Lazarus in a tomb and they take this huge stone and roll the tomb over and they walk back to the house and for four days, family, friends, neighbors, and professional weepers and wailers are gathered around Mary and Martha helping her mourn. Helping them mourn. And then, somebody says, Jesus is coming. And so Martha runs out of the house and is gone for a little while while Mary stays in the house and you stay with Mary. But then after some period of time, Martha comes back to the house and she says, To Mary, Mary, the Master wants to see you. And when Mary goes out, everybody in the house follows Mary, and they're grieving with Mary. They want to support Mary. And so they watch this interaction between the rabbi and between Mary. And the first thing Mary says is, Rabbi, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus says, "Um, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And ultimately, as you watch this interchange, Jesus says, I want to see the tomb. And so they walk to the tomb. And you walk at a pretty good distance away. And there's Jesus. And there's Mary. And there's Martha. And they're just looking at the covered up tomb. The cave in which Lazarus is contained. And Jesus looks at the scene. And He looks at Mary. And He looks at Martha. And He's deeply troubled. And you see this look on this rabbi's face and and you're thinking to yourself, um, what's going on in his mind? What's going on? You can tell that there's something that's not right. And when Jesus looks at Mary and Martha and then he looks back at the tomb, this rabbi begins to weep. Cry. Maybe even uncontrollably. And then... He says, roll away the stone. And Martha, who wants to maintain a sense of respectability for her brother and a sense of good memory for him, says, no, you can't do that, Rabbi. It's been four days. There is an odor. He's decomposing. I don't want to remember my brother like that. And Jesus as this great resurrecting Savior can only say. He says, roll away the stone. And everybody is wondering what is about to happen. And He yells out, Lazarus! Come out! And a dead man comes walking out of that tomb. A corpse is alive again. And as a neighbor, 
And as somebody who's just familiar a little bit with this Jesus, you are completely astounded. You are dumbfounded. You cannot believe what is going on. But now this man who has been dead for four days is alive and this rabbi has made it so. And you don't know exactly how to respond. Look down at John chapter 11. Verse 45. And we're about to read how you can respond in two different ways. And you're going to be put in the same position that the neighbor was put in at that moment. Beginning in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everybody will believe in him. And the Romans will come, and they'll take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the nation, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went up from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, of course, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. 
What we find in these verses are the two basic responses that every person who comes face to face with the reality of Jesus makes. You either reject Christ or you revere Christ. You either dismiss yourself from this person and his work or you cling to him and you are devoted to him because exactly who he is and what he does. Those are the only two responses that you can have to the person and work of Christ. You either reject him or you revere him. You either dismiss him or you devote your life to him. So let's walk through the passage and let's bring Let's bring these realities home to our hearts toward the end. Let's look at this rejection that we see of Christ as a response to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. We see the rejection starting in verse 45 where some of the Jews who actually saw this, man, they believed. They're like, wow, nobody can do this except God. We believe in Him. But, but, some of them actually run to the Pharisees and tell them exactly what Jesus has done. I like to say they tattletailed on Jesus. And we have to ask the question, why would they immediately respond, not in awe, not in worship, not in bowing down, not in staying with this person who is unbelievably powerful, but running to the Pharisees? Because they had an allegiance to the Pharisees. They had an affection for the Pharisees. They had a history with the Pharisees. They didn't have much history with Jesus. And so they're going to who they are, have their allegiance to, their loyalty to, and their desires to find some significance with. And that is the Pharisees. And so what the Pharisees do, they say, well, what in the world are we going to do? We've got to hatch a plan. And if you look down at the text, what you're going to find is they're not denying the miracle. They're not denying any of the signs. They're not saying these things haven't happened. No. No. And really, they haven't before. They didn't deny that the blind man uh, got his sight. They didn't deny that the lame man started walking. They weren't trying to explain away what these things were in some natural form. No. This is the thing. When your heart is bent on preserving self, self-autonomy, self-prestige, your own little kingdom, then you don't really care what reality is. You don't really care what the signs are. You've just got to protect your turf. And whatever you've got to do to protect your turf, that's what you're going to do. And so, church, let me just give you a little bit of insight. Don't think, don't think for a minute that if, if, if God would just do an amazing miracle in the here and now, that a bunch of people would be changed, they would be regenerated, and their lives would be new because they actually see an actual miracle before their eyes. Don't think that. Because the human heart is so torn up, it is so depraved, it is so, it's so backwards and bent and dark that a sign or a miracle is not what it takes. Uh, what it takes is the miracle of regeneration where God the Holy Spirit comes in and changes a person's heart from the inside out. And so, they're like, what, what can we do? 
We've got to preserve our place. We've got to preserve Jerusalem. We've got to preserve the temple. We've got to preserve the holy place. We've got to preserve the holy of holies. We've got, we've got our prestige to worry about. We've got our power to work about. We've got our influence to worry about. We can't let him upset our apple cart. And so Caiaphas, who is the high priest there, he, he is the, the highest of the high in and around Jerusalem. He says, listen, you know nothing at all. This is a very crafts say it, it, it literally means you are a bunch of ignoramuses. What are y'all even thinking right now? This is the deal. This man's got to die. This man's got to die. He's going to die for the people because if he doesn't die for the people, then the people, all of us, are ultimately going to die. And so he makes this proclamation. Now you need to know that Caiaphas is not aware of the prophetic nature of this statement. What Caiaphas is doing is saying, if we don't kill him, then we're going to lose our power and prestige. And so we've got to kill him so that we can preserve our kingdom. And they're like, oh, okay. Now, what God is great at is taking what man means for evil and showing how he's going to use it for good. And Caiaphas, this Evil, Sadducee, high priest, is trying to accomplish the murder of the most righteous man who's ever lived, and God is putting His stamp of approval on it because that is the only way that people like them and like us will ever be saved from our sins. So, from that day on, verse 53, they, they made plans to put him to death. And so the word gets out. If anybody hears about Jesus coming around, anybody sees him, if there are any eyewitnesses as you think he might be in this house or he's over at this congregation hall or anything like that, you need to let the Sadducees and the Pharisees know because we've got to arrest this guy. And so Jesus leaves that area. He leaves Bethany and he goes up to a, a town called Ephraim, which is about 15 miles away. And he hangs out there for a while, a number of days, if not weeks. And then it's Passover time. Now, let's refresh our memory what Passover is. Passover is that commemoration of the very first time in which the people were leaving Egypt out of bondage and slavery and God says that I'm going to have an angel of death come over and the Egyptians in particular, all their firstborn are going to die. Now if you sacrifice a lamb, Jews, if you sacrifice a lamb and you spread the blood over the doorpost, then the angel of death will fly over. It will pass over your house and everybody in your house will be preserved. And so they had a meal on that same night to celebrate God passing over all of them and saving them through the blood of the Lamb. And so every year after that, they celebrated the Passover, the time in which God saved His people through the spilling of blood. And this is the time in which everybody that could would come to Jerusalem. About 100,000 people lived in Jerusalem during this time, but whenever Passover came, there were more than a million people who flooded into Jerusalem. People are everywhere. And so many are there. And so they're, they're looking for Jesus. 
I mean, they, they've heard all the words. Many of them have seen. Surely a lot of the 5,000 men and probably five or 10,000 more women and children who were on the countryside that day when Jesus had fed every one of them with just some fish and some bread that could fit all in a basket, they were there. And they're like, is He going to show? There's a lot of buzz about Jesus. He's raised this man from the dead. He's made the blind to see. He's made the lame to walk. He's done all of these things. And now the Pharisees and Sadducees are after Him. Is He going to show up? Is He brave enough? Is He risky enough? Is He courageous enough? Is He crazy enough? And so, look at chapter 12, verse 1. We begin to see this reverence for Jesus. So six days before the Passover. Passover on Thursday, so, so it's Saturday. Jesus comes into Bethany where Lazarus was. The man who was a corpse, the man who was a cadaver, the man who was decomposing is now inside a home. Maybe the, the home of Simon. And he's there, and they're giving a dinner for Jesus in honor of what Jesus has done. And to celebrate the, the now resuscitated life of Lazarus. And Martha serves... And Lazarus is reclining with Jesus at the table. This term reclining means that it's a banquet. This is not just an informal dinner. This is not just some group of friends gathering together just to have a meal. This is a banquet. It's got the twelve disciples. It's got Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Jesus, close friends, likely close relatives. Who knows how many people there are? Maybe 30, maybe 40. But this is a banquet honoring the work of Jesus in the life of Lazarus. And Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. What we want to see here is that this ointment, also called perfume in the passage, is from northern India into the mountains and had been gathered and had the compound had been I guess you could say extracted. It was sweet. It was red. It was, it was refreshing. And it had traveled from northern India all the way to Jerusalem and had been sold and it had been likely purchased for a year's wage. Now, the last time I looked, the average wage of a Calhoun County citizen is about $22,000. What we need to understand is then, in our terms, from us to understand how much this bottle was worth, if it was today, it would be a $22,000 bottle of perfume, of ointment. That's a lot. And it is special, and you would think that that might be used over the course of five years, seven years, eight years. But Mary right here uses it in her course of five minutes, seven minutes, as she pours the entire bit of ointment. Now listen, not on his head, not on his hands. The church, where does she pour this? On his feet. Mary is at this banquet. It is formal. It is honorary. It's exciting. There's a buzz in the air. Now let's just stop for a moment 
let's just let's just get our let's get a little bit of, of grips here, a little contextual GPS. I want you all, if you're familiar with Classic on Noble, I want you to I want you to envision yourself at Classic on Noble. I want you to envision you're at a white linen covered table, sitting eight. There, you're at some banquet celebrating somebody, and there there is a shined silverware. There is a china plate in the center, really nice glasses, huge tall ca- candle in the center of the plate. There is fine music playing. Everything is great. And you look over at the table beside you and there is a woman who has pulled off the shoes of a man and she is pouring ointment on this man's bare feet and wiping his feet with her hair. What's going on in your mind? That's crazy. This is not the time or place for that. This is what you're thinking. This is a little uncouth. This is a little inappropriate. This is making me really nervous right now. I'm feeling uncomfortable, honey. I've got to go to the bathroom. That's what you're thinking. And everybody in that room, let's transfer back to the first century, Jesus, everybody is relaxing and dining and enjoying the presence of Jesus. And all of a sudden, Mary takes that alabaster jar of majorly expensive ointment, she gets down on her knees. She takes Jesus' feet and she pours that ointment onto His feet and no doubt rubbed His feet and His ankles and the bottom of His nasty, hard, calloused feet with that ointment with no shame with no sense of, I wonder what these people are thinking. I don't know that I should be doing this. Maybe I've made a mistake. None of that is going on in her mind. All she is thinking is that I have followed this man for three years. I have seen what he has done. I have heard his message. I have watched his power. And he has risen my brother from the grave. I'm going to worship this man. And she worships him in the most extravagant way a person could possibly worship in that day and time. We've got a lot to learn from Mary. But not everybody uh, enjoyed or appreciated Mary's act of worship, the extravagance of it the humility of it, the servant-minded nature of it, the awe of it, in particular Judas. John, the writer of this particular account, wants us to see the difference between a person whose heart has been changed by the Gospel, whose, whose heart has been changed by the resurrecting power of Christ Jesus, and a person who is still after his own kingdom. Oh, he really wants to be attached to Jesus. Oh, he really wants to be around the ministry of Jesus. He wants to receive the blessings of Jesus, but his heart is still protecting his own glory. He wants us to see the difference because Judas, he's upset. And he couches his anger He couches his his ire and his indignation with a concern for the poor. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, it's real easy, even this very day, for people 
to hide their lack of reverence and awe and worship of Jesus by looking horizontally at the needs and issues of life. I'll tell you something. The needs and issues of life are there, but historically, the people who meet those needs the most are people who are in awe of a Savior who redeems people's lives from the grave. So Judas is upset and he complains that this is being improperly used and wasted when it could have been given for the poor. But John just tells us he's not concerned about the poor. He's a thief and he wanted to steal that money so that he could use it for his own protection, his own kingdom. He wanted a new uh, set of sandals. He wanted a new robe. He wanted security for himself. He wanted a better house, maybe closer to Jerusalem. He wanted stuff for himself and this was the way he could have gotten it, but instead he's, he's not able to because it's wasted on Jesus. Jesus is omniscient. He knows what's going on in the heart of Mary. He knows what's going on in the heart of of, uh, Judas. And so let's look at those final words of Jesus in this passage. Leave her alone. Now the language that is used right here at the end is a little bit ambiguous. But this is what Jesus means. She is anointing my body for burial. I'm going to die and she's anointing my body in preparation for my death and burial. So leave her alone. Look at, the, look at verse 8. This is critical, church. For the poor you have with you always, but you do not always have me. I'll tell you something. Jesus prioritizes the extravagant worship of Jesus. Jesus prioritizes the extravagant, generous worship of Jesus. This is critical. Now, for those of you who write down our big ideas, if, for those of you who meditate through the week on the words that you pen during the sermon, this, this is what we got. Jesus is the resurrection and the life who provokes two different responses to all who encounter Him. Jesus is the resurrection and the life who provokes two different responses for all who encounter Him. And those responses are rejection or reverence. Rejection or reverence. The title of the message is He is provocative. He's provocative. What do do I mean that? He he provokes within every person who encounters Him two basic responses. Nobody leaves Jesus. Nobody leaves the tomb of Lazarus watching that cadaver walk out, breathing air again, blood pumping, brain working, and say, yeah, that was a very meaningless experience in my life. I'll go keep leaving. Nobody does that. You either leave that tomb that day and you revere this man or you reject him. So, I want to look at the two options for us in our current, in our current life and our current culture by way of application here. Um, the first thing I want to do is I want us to look at this rejection of Jesus in, in, in our world. What does rejection of Jesus look like today? Listen, we're, we're no longer in Jerusalem. 
we're, we're in Oxford. Uh, we're no longer in the physical presence of Jesus. We, Jesus has ascended into heaven. He has borne the weight of our sin. He has been um, buried. He's been risen from the dead. He has ascended into heaven. He is at the right hand of God right now, interceding for us sinners who believe in Him. He's going to return one day in power and glory and awesomeness and all of that. But right now, right now, we're in that already not yet. He's already come, but He's not yet come in His full glory and His eternal weight of worship that everyone will give to Him. And so, so what are the ways that people now reject Jesus, kind of in this contemporary way. So I was, I was meditating on this, and I thought of, of a bunch of various isms. Ways that Jesus is being rejected. You know, some of the obvious ones are atheism. I read to you that grievous article, that obituary last, last week from the guy from the Tallahassee Democrat. Just straight up atheist. Basically, he just says, I don't believe in God. I certainly don't believe in Jesus. If you can remember, he said at the very end of his obituary, if you hear that I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior before I died, do not believe it. Okay, so that's just straight up disbelieving that Jesus Christ is God or that there is even a God. And then there's agnosticism. And I look out at our congregation today and uh, Daniel, I know that you have met with and talked with people who are really basically agnostic and you're trying to reach them. And so, you know, they just kind of a wait and see approach. I don't know. I'm not sure. Maybe Jesus, maybe there was this guy named Jesus. Maybe not. Maybe he did uh, do some wonderful things. I probably didn't commit miracles. I don't know. But that's agnosticism. Pluralism. That's, there are many ways to God. Okay, so maybe there was a Jesus. Maybe he did live. Maybe he did die. Maybe he did was crucified. Um, but, but that's not the only way to know God. I remember the story that David Platt told uh, some 10, 12 years ago about being in India, I think he was, ironically. And he was standing with a, a monk, uh, a, a Buddhist, a, a Muslim, and, and uh, some other religion. And they were all talking. And one of the, I think it was the Buddhist priest said, well, I kind of like, like to think about it as a mountain. That, you know, we're, we're all climbing different routes up the mountain. But we're going up the same mountain, and when we finally get to the top, we all meet one another there. You just came from the east, and I come from the west, and they came from the north. We took different routes, but we reached the same place. And I remember David Platt saying this. He said, I had to lovingly tell them, that that's the difference between the gospel and every other religion that exists in the world. Because the God who is at the top does not wait for people to come to Him. He actually climbs down the mountain and comes to them and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But pluralism is a way to reject Christ. Moralism. Church, please listen to these in particular because you have neighbors. You have family members. You have co-workers who are thinking today that if I am a good person, if I make good decisions, if I care for my neighbors and my family members and I make sure my grandkids have what they need, then surely that's going to account for something with God whenever I die and face Him. Moralism. It's kind of, it's kind of wrapped up in, in, in this weird Bible Belt religious 
gospel, Bible-believing, but Bible-ignorant culture that we live in. Moralism. And not too different is religionism. Now, there is a little bit of a distinction here. Moralism, you're not really all that concerned about going to church. You're, You're just worried about being a good person. As a matter of fact, you take pride in the fact that you're a better person than those people who go to church. I have plenty of people in my life who feel that way. All right, but religionism is the idea that I'm at church on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. Whenever those doors are open, I'm here. And I guarantee you something, if there's anybody who's going to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, it's going to be me because I am faithful to the church. That's religionism. And listen, that's a way to reject Jesus Christ. Because you're not counting on Him and His resurrecting power. You're counting on you and your fidelity to this God that you have created in your own mind. Easy believism is a rejection of Christ. It's saying, you know, oh yeah, that Jesus, man, He he was something. And and I love it when that when those songs come on my on 104.7 and they talk about a little bit about Jesus. I'm just like, hallelujah, that is so, that is so great. I believe he lived and died. and I believe I'm going to see Grandpappy in heaven. And I believe it's going to be so great. And we're going to have the best old time out on the front porch. But I'm living with my girlfriend. I'm cheating on my taxes. I'm cursing out my employer behind his back. And I'm doing everything that I can to build my own kingdom now. That's a rejection of Jesus Christ. Materialism. Materialism. This is the concept that whoever dies with the most toys wins. Right? Jamie and I were listening to Pandora this morning. And we're just listening to Christian music like we normally do on Sunday mornings and at the table. And I think it was uh, the lady on the ad, because we haven't paid the $3.99 to have no commercials. All right? And so she's saying, she's saying, um, your wardrobe is incomplete. And you need to complete it at such and such website. And, and Jamie and I were, were saying, you know, ads are so good, they're so slick, because they are convincing us that we don't have enough clothes. If they would just look at our closet, if they would see our shoes, right? But, but what they're doing is they are trying to appeal to us that we've got to be thoroughly, profusely clothed with exactly the right stuff at exactly the right time and exactly the right season. But you know, that's, that's effective. They're not advertising that thinking that nobody's going to listen to this. They're advertising it knowing that the human heart is hardwired to hear, oh, I need more stuff. I've got to have more clothes. I've got to have a bigger, better, slicker, sleeker thing, whatever that is. And the reason it is, church, is because when we don't set our eyes and our heart to be in awe vertically, it only leaves us with one option, to be in awe horizontally. And so, materially, I'm going to be in awe of the shiniest, brightest thing. I told Jamie the other day, I watched two pastors in at Starbucks last week walk out of Starbucks and go to the parking lot and walk around a brand new truck that one of the pastors had observing every shiny, bright thing that was there and standing back in awe of that thing. 
And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying something looks wrong with that. Materialism is to say, I just really don't want to stand in awe of Him. I want to be in awe of the things that make me feel good and comfortable and beautiful and powerful. Because it's really about my kingdom. Legalism. Keep the laws so you can present yourself approved to God. Every jot, tittle, and you walk the straight line, and then you've got God in your debt. And that, that's the thing about legalism is that you put God on the hook for your life and you say, I've obeyed, so now you owe me, God. And that's where a lot of people are. And so when people experience trauma and tragedy in their life, they say, but wait a minute, this is not right. I go to church. I tithe. I do this and I do this for God. Surely He's got to give me the things that I wanted. And when God doesn't give them, not what He promised them, but what they have demanded from Him, then they get really upset. So most legalists, most people who are in church and who are legalists are angry people because they're not getting everything from God that they want. They're demanding it from Him. But they're rejecting Christ in that. They're saying Christ isn't enough. He's not my joy. He's not my pleasure. So many more. I'll just say one or one or two more here. Um, hedonism. Hedonism basically says if it feels good, do it. If it doesn't feel good, don't do it. Because it's all about how it feels. It's all about that it makes you feel warm and fuzzy and great and all of that. And so if it does make you feel that way, man, be all about it. But if it doesn't make you feel that way, then leave it like a bad habit and go to something that makes you feel really good. Whether it's a marriage that you need to leave, whether it's a job you need to leave, whether it's a church you need to leave, whether it's a family member you need to leave, leave it if it doesn't make you feel good. And that is a rejection of Christ because I can tell you this, Christ wasn't feeling too good at Calvary when He was had His arms stretched out, His feet nailed, and He was bearing the weight of our sin. I'm pretty sure that didn't feel good. But He stayed. He stayed. Because there is something greater than how something makes you feel. It's called the glory of God. And it has staying power. It did on the cross, and it should in our lives. I probably have seven or eight more, but I'm going to stop there. I think you get the idea that rejection of Christ has so many different forms. It has so many different tentacles. And if I haven't addressed one that maybe hits your heart and your life, this is what I know. Don't leave thinking, huh, there are just no areas in which I'm tempted to reject Jesus Christ. All right, this is what you need to do. You need to think, I know because I'm, I'm a human and I have flesh that I need to investigate my own life to see what areas in which I'm holding on to my own kingdom and I'm a thief of the glory of God because I'm not letting Jesus Christ have total reign in my life. Do that. Do that. Don't waste the opportunity to do a little heart inspection on that. Now on the flip side, what does reverence for Christ look like? Now this is beautiful, but it's also radical. Just taken straight from the example of Mary, 
the first thing that it starts with is awe. A-W-E. Mary had said, Oh, if you'd have been here, Lord, my brother would not have died. And he says, You're about to see the glory of God. I'm about to glorify myself in this. And he raises her brother from the dead. And for the next, oh, I don't know how long, she stands in awe of Jesus, and then she gets down on her hands and knees and expresses her awe of Jesus. And she doesn't think one moment, she doesn't think for one second that as she's down here on this, on her knees and His feet are here, she's not thinking, I don't know, should I use a third of it? Should I use a half of it? Should, um, should I just maybe just dab a little bit? Um, I'm not sure. No, she pours it out extravagantly because she knows that He... He is an extravagant Savior and Redeemer and Resurrector. And so she's in awe of Him. We should be marked by awe. A church, I do think that we have succumbed to pragmatism and conservatism in our forms of worship in our expressions of love for one another. People can know us, and frankly, we don't sound very different from anybody else. People can go into our homes, and we cannot sound very different from anybody else. And we may say a thing or two about God, and we might even ask the people who are with us if we could say grace. But people, when they're around us, don't sense an awe. We need to learn from Mary the idea that a man who can raise another man from the dead and then goes and dies on a cross and is buried and raises himself from the dead and goes to heaven and is going to come back is worthy of our awe every single day we live. So awe and gratitude. 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 She's so grateful for Jesus. And, and I want to I say something here. Um, even inside the church, we have succumbed to the American ideal of complaining when we don't get what we want as consumers. If you took an inventory of your life and the people around you for a week, are you going to hear more subtle and overt complaining or are you going to hear more subtle and overt expressions of gratitude to God and to others? telling you this, when you walk through the doors of a church building and you have the opportunity to sing resurrecting, when you have the opportunity to sing songs like Great Is Thy Faithfulness, and you can pour out a heart of gratitude for changing your heart from the inside out, there is no place for griping and complaining. 
If you want to gripe and complain, you're either doing two things. You are living in sin or you are, you are showing yourself to be a person who has yet to experience the resurrecting love of Jesus Christ. Let's be warned by that. Let's be warned. It's not our kingdom. It's not our show. It's not our deal. This is about Jesus. Let's be grateful for the fact that He resurrects. Okay, so... Let me just hit on a couple more. Stay with me here so that we can milk Mary's example as much as we can. Humility. Humility. Um, she, we talk about this a lot, I know, but humility is not looking in the mirror and saying, oh, I'm a terrible person. No, humility is not really looking in the mirror. It's just saying I'm really not worried about how I look and everything about there. I'm worried about serving and loving and being grateful for what God has done. And so how can I contribute to who God is and His glory? And so that's why she's on her knees. That's why she's down at His feet. That's why she's saying, listen, sure, I could probably anoint His head. Sure, I could probably anoint His hands. But I want to go the lowest of the low. I want to get to the dirtiest of the dirty because this is my place in life in the kingdom of God. I'm a servant. I'm a servant. That's what extravagant worship is. And so I'll, I'll just move to the next one. Extravagant generosity. She's, she's in awe. She's grateful. She's humble. And she is extravagantly generous. She doesn't look back. She doesn't say, oh, I, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't give this much. Maybe I shouldn't pour out this much. No, she says, He is worthy. He is worthy of my reverence and my generosity. And I'm going to say one more thing here. Unbridled worship. Unbridled worship. I will tell you that it was unheard of for a woman to let down her hair in public. If you walk the streets of Jerusalem for one solid year, in the first century, you would not see one woman with her hair pulled out and flowing in the city. And Mary is so unconcerned with appearances and so deeply concerned with serving and worshiping the Savior that she opens up her hair and wipes the Savior's feet in preparation for His death. Let me tell you this, church. Let us not be so self-aware. Let us not be so self-conscious about what people think about us or what people are estimating about us. And let us be more concerned with how we can express unbridled worship to the One who resurrects our dead hearts back to life and our dead souls back for eternity. You would bow your heads.